Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Yeah. Boom, we can't get fooled again. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. That's Marcus Parks. Hey, Ben. How are you, Marcus? I'm good, Ben. How are you? Good. You have a lot of Pez on the table. Yeah, I was eating it. That's fine. <laughs> um, all right, so as a, uh, I guess it's a, a bonus episode to some degree here yeah. on Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, an extension of our conversation we had on last podcast on the left. We did listener pastas this past week, or this current week, and we got a call from a fellow named Tamim, and it turns out his full name, Tamim Ferris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told an amazing story about how he was over in Iraq, and uh, they found a torture chamber, and it concluded with a mountain of skulls, <laughs> a pyramid of skulls, rather. Actually, as, it's like there was still quite a bit of skin left on those yes, skulls. Yes, possibly talkative skulls. <laughs> uh, who knows? But either way, that was such an intriguing story. We wanted to have him on this show, and we want to talk about um, the atrocities of war and also what's happening with Veterans Affairs, uh, the VA. Obviously, there's been a lot of scandal, and a lot of people feel, and I think rightfully so, that we're not treating our troops, our veterans, nearly as well as we should be. So thanks so much for being on the show, me. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. So go back a little bit. When were you first deployed, and uh, what was that situation like? Okay, so, uh, well, even further back, I joined the Army in 05. Um, I guess you could say that I've been suffering from a uh, continual existential crisis, basically, since I was, like, 15 on. Um, So, you know, lack of options. Well, not lack of options, but lack of idea for what to do after I finished high school. I decided you know, whatever, I'll join the army, uh, and see, see what that's all about. Now your, now your, your name is Tamim. Was the military hesitant to have you on board? <laughs> did they give you the once over a few times more than they did the average person named Josh? <laughs> well, you know what? It did take significantly longer for my security clearance to come through. So <laughs> I'm sure they dug in a little bit. So it's 2005. You're looking for something to do. Obviously, we're four years removed from 9-11 at that point. Um, we, so you came into the military. This was uh, the, the fog of war was uh, extremely high. At this point, Donald Rumsfeld was uh, he wanted to resign from the Bush administration. The Bush administration refused to allow him. So um, they could not change as to not change horses in midstream. The uh, the term coined by Abraham Lincoln himself. Um 
So you go in, the war is not looking great at this point. 2005 in this country, the morale was extremely low. This is before the surge happened uh, in 2006, 2007, that was able to allow Barack Obama to withdraw so many troops in 2008 and take a lot of credit for it. What was your mindset in 2005 regarding the war in Iraq? Uh, You know, I joined the Army knowing that I was going to deploy. I guess that's like the bottom line. And... um, I wanted to deploy, you know, like I had this romantic idea of of what war was and the experiences that somebody has kind of like from just like a self-development perspective, I guess, Um, you know. What, 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 Everybody wants to do something with their life, right? And I figured, what the hell, I'll do that. What was some of the? Um, what was your 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 vision of war? What was your your fantastic version that you had created in your mind of what war would be? And then when you got there, how was it different? Oh man, the fantastic! You know, everybody wants to be a war hero, right? So. <laughs> I, I saw myself flinging grenades into German bunkers and <laughs> all kinds of crazy shit like that. Oh, speaking of which, total side note, but uh, don't let these guys get you down about your grandfather too much. Oh, my thank you. <laughs> my great-grandfather was actually a, a paratrooper for the Nazis in World War II. There you go. See, now we have something yeah. in common. That's the, the, a fine thread throughout our friendship. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you got to Iraq and found that it was more jarhead than anything else oh absolutely i mean we got there and uh we landed and uh it was just kind of balls to the wall from the, the minute that we hit the ground as far as uh getting set up you know it, it, everybody has this idea that you know you see in movies people go to like these briefings where there's like these great maps and everybody's got info and people are asking these poignant questions about what's going to happen but the reality is mm. that nobody fucking knows what's going on especially mm. in the army <laughs> you know what i mean so you got a bunch of people that think they know what's going on uh trying to run this herd of cats you know what i mean um and so everything is just a lot more like decentralized, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, than you would think. So, so we landed. It was a pain in the ass getting all our stuff together, moving out to our new base, which I told you guys about was that uh, Catholic seminary that we had taken over. Right. And uh, when we got there, we found that the unit that we were replacing had taken some pretty heavy losses um, earlier on in their deployment, and as a result, they kind of suspended all operations in the area. So they would do maybe like one patrol a day. And that was just to keep like the key supply route open so that they could get supplies from the main fob uh, out to their location. Can you clarify a little bit? Where was your exact location? I mean, I don't want to be like Geraldo Rivera over here and, and, (laughs) you know, but I think we're quite, quite a few years removed, but where did you land exactly? And uh, where was it in, in, um, in, in reference to the main battles that we would see on the news on a regular basis? So we were, Uh, We flew into Baghdad International Airport and then took a helicopter out to a big fob that was in the like southernmost part of Baghdad. And then our combat outpost where my company was, was like the southern tip. So in relation to like, uh, you know, we were probably like 40 or 50 miles south uh, west of like Fallujah. Okay. um, And and like... um, Haifa Street, like all those big battles that were happening on Haifa Street, that was 
you know, maybe 10 minutes north of where we were in Baghdad, further into like the metropolitan area. So they really just drop you in the middle of it. They don't do what they did to me when I got my job at Burger King. They started me off on loading the buns before they allowed me to deal with the meat. And then eventually I worked my way up to deep fryer and then I got fired for eating the chicken nuggets. But that's a whole nother story. They really just throw you in the middle of it. And this is your first time uh, on Middle Eastern soil and you're supposed to navigate around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they took our company. I mean, we had great leadership going in uh, from the company level, you know, our first sergeant, our company commander. Um, they did what they could to try and get us as much information about where we were going. Uh, but it really was kind of flying blind, like from from like the lower kind of grunt enlisted perspective where I was, you know, I just get told to go somewhere by my NCO and I go there. You know, I don't know what we're doing necessarily or why we're there. Um, right. So, yeah, we were flying blind. So you show up at this Catholic church, and for those who haven't heard the last podcast on the left episode yet, please go back and listen to that right now. Pause this. Go listen to his story on last podcast on the left. Uh, they had to fortify the Catholic church. And you were saying the group that was in there previously, they had taken heavy losses. You're new. You're brand brand new and bushy-tailed for the most part. What did you get? Did you get a sense of, like, oh, shit, judging from how these people are right now emotionally and uh, they just seem to be devastated? devastated for more we're in for a lot more than we expected yeah that was kind of the feeling when we first arrived a lot of their guys had already pulled out at that point and they had kind of like a skeleton crew on the ground to do what we call left and right seat rides which is where you know you take half of a platoon from the incoming unit and half of a platoon from the outgoing unit and then you go do patrols together to get a kind of a better idea of what the ao is like but i mean that being said the only patrols they were doing were these like logistical type patrols to keep the supply routes open. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, they were shell shocked. I mean, a hundred percent they were. Yeah. What would be an average thing that you would see on a patrol? What would be just something that would, you know, sort of strike us as strange, but uh, day after day after day, you'd be like, Oh, that's just a normal situation. Um, well, there was uh, these kids, right, in, in a neighborhood that was kind of next to where our cop was. We would see them every couple of days. And they were these two, like, white, red-haired kids that looked like they came from Wisconsin. Huh. <laughs> and uh, and so we called them SF Rape Babies because we figured they were just old enough to have been conceived when the war first started. Oh, uh, Jesus, <laughs> that's, a, that's a brutal joke. That is yeah. dark. Ooh, that's dark. Yeah. yeah. That's our sense of humor after being in a situation like that for yeah. uh, long enough. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, you know, uh, here on the actually on, on Top Hat and on last podcast, we actually do have quite a few military listeners. Like, and some guys, like we said, like that when they were out on desert patrol, they'd actually just like sit around the campfire and just listen to last podcast episodes together. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's definitely a darker sense of humor. That's Much for darker. sure. Um, so just go into some of your experiences. Uh, how long were you actually uh, in battle? How um, Did you see a lot of actual combat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the majority of what we saw, at least in the Baghdad area, was in the first kind of 90 days, uh, the first like maybe three to four months of uh, the deployment itself. And I mean, during that period, it was like every single day. Like we would go out on patrol and it wasn't a matter of, I wonder if we're gonna get uh, hit on this patrol. It was a matter of where and when on this patrol are we gonna mm. get hit? Because it was an inevitability that we were gonna take fire at some point, be it sniper fire, machine gun fire, someone just chucking a grenade at us, whatever. 
but it was just like every single day. Uh, for the overall deployment itself, I was in Iraq for 15 months. Okay. So I was there as part of the surge, kind of the tail end of it, like you mentioned earlier. So how does that, I mean, obviously we have a lot of conversations in this country right now, uh, you know, going to the VA. We, I don't want to talk about the VA quite yet, but PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe a little bit just what the emotions are when we go out to work, when Marcus and I come here to the studio to record, you know, maybe I tell a couple of terrible jokes. That's probably <laughs> going to happen, but it's not life and death. And the stress level is obviously much lower. How do you cope with going out every single day on a, on a uh, routine, on a routine day, knowing that there's a good chance? chance that one of your friends or you yourself might die you know it's like uh that old chestnut that people pass around where it's like you just got to kind of accept the fact that you're probably already dead uh and then you can go out and do the job because i mean you know i i didn't really mention this but that first attack that i mentioned in the last uh in the last podcast on the left um that was like day one on the ground at our outpost. We got lit up like bad. And uh, I was in a guard tower with a buddy of mine who got shot by a sniper sitting right next to me. And so that was my first experience of war was this dude was like two feet away from me and oh. gets shot. He lived, thankfully. But um, so, you know, even up to that point, uh, it was kind of a game to yeah. me. Um, it didn't really strike me the gravity of the situation. And it wasn't until a few other people got killed and wounded uh, that I really started to just kind of like spiral downward into this just, you know, apathetic kind of just I don't give a shit. Like anger really mm-hmm. was the dominating emotion for sure. Like I just wanted to go out on patrol every day and kill as many people as we could if we got in a fight. Um, as if that was going to make up somehow for my friends that had been killed, you know? Right. And so what is that like? You're in the middle of this firefight. Your friend gets shot by a sniper. Thankfully, he lives. What happens then? Do you, you stop everything and try to help him, or, are you, or do you have to just continue on your battle? I mean, no, none of us, most 99.9% of the people will not understand what decision to make in that situation. What do you do? <laughs> it was, it's actually like I didn't know what to do. I was completely... Friggin' just like shell shocked, uh, gobsmacked. You know what I mean? Like he got shot, and at first I didn't even realize that he'd been shot. For some reason, I thought that he just tripped and like fell over. Um, because I, it's not like in the movies where this like torrent of blood comes like gushing out of the person. There's almost no blood. Hmm. Uh, you know, unless it's a very specific type of injury. But, um, yeah, so this dude got shot, he fell over, and I was like, what the fuck, why'd you fall over, you know? We're getting shot at right now, man. And then uh, one of the more experienced platoon sergeants uh, was coming up the stairs, and he was just like, he's hit, get him out of here. So I just hooked my arm under uh, under the shoulder of his body armor, and I dragged him back from the edge of the roof to like the stairwell and that's when i saw like the trail of blood Hmm. uh from where he'd where he'd fallen um and then at that point even then i was still like i have no idea what to do so i went into uh treating somebody for like shock you know what i mean like loosening their all their clothing and all that kind of stuff like so yeah it was it wasn't until a medic came upstairs and was like yo we got to get this guy down into the aid station fast and we tossed him on a litter and got him downstairs. 
Can you describe a little bit what is urban warfare? I think we're going to start seeing more urban warfare as uh, as uh, war continues. We don't have the Vietnam situation so much anymore. We're not fighting, uh, you know, in the middle of forests with with dookie covered spikes uh, that we, <laughs> there we're concerned about, uh, you know, falling into via booby trap. What does urban war actually look like? And uh, can you just describe a little bit about um, some of the dangers that go with it? The, the, there's a lot of corners. I mean, every room is a is a hiding space. How do you look at a at a city with the uh, with the eyes of a uh, of a uh, of a uh, soldier as opposed to the eyes of a civilian? So I'll just preface all of this by saying that urban warfare is extremely stressful, probably more stressful than any other form of warfare. Not to you know all war is stressful, but urban warfare is the worst by far. Um, you know you hear you hear this term asymmetric warfare tossed around, and really that's kind of like the key. Uh, piece of an urban fight is that you don't know where the threat is you don't know where it's coming from um, it's a 360 battlefield and it's a three-dimensional battlefield so the, the threat can be coming from any direction and you know up or down hmm. um, it's not like you said Vietnam where you're walking through a rice paddy and then there's a wood line and you start taking fire from the wood line um, I mean, frequently we would get in firefights in Iraq and we would have no idea where the fire was coming from. No idea at all. We just knew we were getting shot at. We had like a general maybe kind of idea. And we would do this thing called a death blossom uh, where we would just everybody would shoot in all directions for about a minute. They call it the mad minute, too. Um, and it's just like trying to get fire superiority. So, you know, it, when in an urban fight, violence of action uh, really is like the defining characteristic. Like you have to take mm -hmm. control of the situation immediately with fire superiority um, and just kind of scare your opponent into either giving up or giving away their position so you can zero in on them and drop some bombs on them or something. Yes, Fire Blossom sounds like an amazing name for a band. Um, I do love that. <laughs> or maybe you're an improv group that does sort of dark humor. Um a lot of people complain, specifically in the media, people who are detached from war, about collateral damage, and rightfully so. I mean, it's awful. Obama's drone war has killed, I mean, countless, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of innocent civilians. Um, from your perspective, how did you guys, did you guys have any ability to avoid collateral damage, killing of innocents, or because it was such an, uh, there were so, you know, you're blind, you don't know where these shots are coming from, and you're doing something like this fire blossom. Did you guys take into account uh, civilians, or was it just whatever you had to do? No, absolutely. I mean, civilians were like a huge concern. Um, and, you know, the training that we got before we deployed was uh, very focused on identifying threats. Uh, you know, does this person have a weapon? Like, you're clearing a room. We would do room clearing drills where there would be silhouettes um, of targets that had rifles and silhouettes of, you know, children, women, civilians with no weapons. And it was a big deal in training if you uh, accidentally shot one of the non, um, you know, weapon-wielding uh, type targets. So you guys uh, had the exact same training as Will Smith from Men in Black? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah, I just looked for any kid that had like an algebra textbook on the street back <laughs> and I just shot him right in the head. <laughs> Probably one of those redheaded kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, on, on the ground, um, we had a very stringent uh, ROE, rules of engagement, as far as the use of force and um, 
you know, escalation methods, mm-hmm. uh, if we detected a threat or if, you know, a car was like barreling down the road towards us, we didn't just shoot the guy in the car. We would, you know, try and flash a flashlight at him if it was nighttime, put a laser on him, shoot a warning shot. And only as the last resort was it to actually kill the uh, individual. But to be completely honest with you, um, when the shit like really hits the fan, yeah. um, it doesn't matter. Honestly, uh, we would just shoot anything. And the, but the thing is that civilians, they, they know when there's shit's about to go down. So mm-hmm. 90% of the time, if we were in a firefight, you didn't see anybody on the streets. Right. So, um, because of that, because obviously the civilians trying to, you know, take cover and things like that, was there ever a situation where um, you later regretted an action once once the battle was done and you got a time a little time to decompress? I mean, the media blows these things out of proportion because they have a lot of uh, they can Monday morning quarterback uh, a lot of d- decisions that are made in the in the middle of a battle. Was there ever a moment where you made a decision and you came back and you had a little time to to think about it and you felt immense amount of regret? Um, no, not, not me personally. Luckily I've never been in a situation where I, um, you know, shot somebody or or did something in a firefight and then, uh, had regret about the action. Like I'm a hundred percent certain every shot I took was justified. Um, and I'm lucky to be able to say that because there's lots of people that can't, I mean, just an example, um, one of the first couple of weeks that we were out there in Baghdad, uh, we had intel that um, the Al-Qaeda guys were flipping pigeons. They were like flying pigeons off the roof as like a signaling method and waving flags as like a sing- signaling method mm-hmm. when we were um, moving around on patrol and stuff. And uh, one of my buddies was on tower guard early one morning. It was like 530 in the morning. And he sees this cloud of pigeons go flying up off a roof next to the cop and this flag kind of start waving around. And uh, there was a, a person up on the roof doing this. And so he took the shot because it was uh, within the ROE and we'd been briefed on that as a threat. And it turned out that it was like a six year old kid that was trying to shoo pigeons off of the satellite dish on his roof. So, um, wow. And, and so how does that person feel? First of all, I'm happy it wasn't Mike Tyson. Uh, that's, that's really, that's really important. Thank God we still have Mike with us. Uh, how did that person deal with that? Obviously nobody, like you were talking about earlier, you go to war thinking you're going to be an army of one, which was the tagline at the time, the motto, and you want to be a hero. Next thing you know, you've shot a six year old. How did that person deal with it? You know, I, it was a very touchy subject. I mean, we all kind of went in at first it was apprehension because anytime something like that happens there's an investigation Mm. uh and so we were worried about him like hey how's this investigation gonna go is he gonna be all right and he ended up being okay he was cleared of all charges uh it was justified because of the information that we've been given um and after that it was just like hey man pat pat on the back you know you had to do it you you didn't know what it was you know Mm. what i mean kind of thing and uh he never showed like any real signs of um, not necessarily remorse, but that it was bothering him. You know what I mean? That it was affecting him. Whether it did later in life, I couldn't tell you. But um, he seemed he seemed okay with it at the time, I guess. You know. So in the fifteen months you were there, um, 
obviously ISIS wasn't on the tip of our tongues yet. I mean, there was, ISIS didn't really come in until 2000, and I'm going to say like 2009, 2010, where it was really the the the, the premier terror group, um, sort of outshining Al Qaeda and things like that. With all the activity that was happening in the war zone, um, did you find, did you see firsthand sort of a rise in more extreme militants in, in sort of the new generation of uh, of extremists? Absolutely. And, and uh, how did you know, that I show sent you guys um, an email that had links to a couple of articles that were written about my company. And the, the, the real takeaway uh, from from the one of the articles is that even in 2007, they were referring to themselves as the Islamic State. Um, so, you know, the warning signs were there that something was coming. Nobody paid attention or knew, well, you know, um, how did it show them? Uh, how did they show themselves? Were there any were there? Was it just a different um, way of conducting war? Was it was it uh, was it heightened technology? Was it more strategic planning? How did you notice that uh, a terror group was showing its face that had never been seen before? Oh, man. I mean, just the uh, coordination, the sophistication of their attacks was really kind of staggering. Um, so what are you some know, of the things they would do? Oh, like, for instance, you know, that first uh, big attack that we had on the cop, I mean, they were using trucks to ferry wounded people out of the battle and bring fresh fighters in, uh, bringing ammo and bringing food. And I mean, they were there for the long haul. It wasn't until... We got air support on station finally and just started dropping Hellfire missiles in all the buildings around us that they just broke and ran. But uh, they were determined to fight, which was a real departure from the stories that I'd heard. Mm. Um, You know, as a young private uh, with no deployment experience, you kind of live vicariously through your leaders that have already deployed and their war stories, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so the stories that they had from Mosul and from other places that the unit had been deployed previously, um, you know, we knew that we were in for a fight, but not on that magnitude. I mean, the stories I heard was that the Iraqis were kind of like the spray and pray kind of guys. They'd duck around a corner, they'd spray a mag of AK-47 at you, and then they'd run away before you even knew where they were. These guys were sticking around and fighting. Yeah, I want to read a couple of, uh, you sent me that article. I want to read the first couple of uh, paragraphs here. It says, Command Outpost Blackfoot used to be a Catholic seminary where monks and nuns studied ancient Christian books and held mass in a tidy chapel. That was before Al-Qaeda decapitated the priest last year and drove out the Christians along with thousands of Muslims in the surrounding Hadar neighborhood, which they referred to as, quote, Islamic State in Iraq. Does that mean hmm. that ISIS essentially started as a neighborhood gang? Absolutely. And their leader was Omar al-Baghdadi. Right. We were never able to catch him. So it was just like the warriors got out of hand. And and that's ISIS? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then they, you know, and then the, the, the collapse of the government in Iraq after we pulled out just gave them all of the opportunity that they needed to fill that vacuum. You know, they captured thousands of weapons, thousands of vehicles, tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition, um, recruited fighters from the disaffected and disenfranchised people that lived, you know, Sunni. I mean, ISIS is primarily Sunni. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, they're only Sunni, I think. They probably kill Shia. At least that's what they were doing when we were around in 07. Um, And so, you know, they just had the perfect, like you said, a neighborhood gang militia that just seized an opportunity and grew exponentially within, I mean, less than eight years. Yeah, I mean, now they're the world's boogeymen. 
Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And Baghdadi is still alive, which is uh, which is unbelievable to think about. Uh, he, he has the, the most powerful army on the face of the planet searching for him every single day, and he's avoided death uh, this entire time. It's pretty phenomenal. Being yeah, over I, there, yeah. kind of a strange question, but I, I do want to uh, ask, do you sympathize at all with ISIS? Being over there and seeing, you know, uh, you have foreign troops coming over to their country. You have these people, uh, you know, if they would have been able to have a job, perhaps they would have taken it. Uh, there wasn't a lot of incentive to do anything other than fight. Do you, uh, can you rationalize a young person who is in the Middle East, who is in Iraq, whose town is absolutely devastated? Can you rationalize them uh, turning to ISIS? Absolutely. Yeah. It's no, it's not a surprise at all that something like this would happen. I mean, the education rate is, is so low, uh, in that part of the world, uh, that you, you know, you like, like you said, you've got these young guys that are angry. Uh, they've been occupied for going on, I don't know what, 10, 12 years now at this point mm -hmm. on and off, um, foreign forces bombing their cities, uh, doing all kinds of you know perceived atrocities to uh, their people, it doesn't surprise me at all that they would uh, just band up with the strongest gang that was around at the time, um, because it probably offers them the best chance of success in, in their endeavor. You know, I think that a lot of these people, though, uh, I would hope anyway, a lot of the just kind of grunt type of run of the mill fighters, like the guys that are trapped in Mosul right now, I'm hoping that they regret. Uh, what they're doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I mean, look, at 99% of the ISIS fighters, they don't do the beheadings. They don't do the burning Jordanian pilots in cages and drowning people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like these are the hardcore kind of um, upper echelon. I feel like of that organization that are using these types of scare tactics to try and drive their brand. Almost, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and did the U.S. do anything to try to recruit the doesn't uh, the disenfranchised kids at all? I mean, I know like currently right now that we we have in Syria, we give a lot of money, we've given arms to uh, Syrian rebels. Many of them have been given a higher paycheck from ISIS the day later and are using those arms against us. What do you think about the U.S. strategy of enticing these people to come and join our side? And is that even plausible, or is the next highest bidder just going to get their affection and they'll use their guns against us uh, anyway? I think that in the current kind of situation, the way that the ground war is being fought against ISIS, it's ineffective, really, to try and just give them weapons and, and money um, without a strong force on the ground to guide them and to train them. Uh, we had a, a thing that happened while I was in Iraq uh, called uh, The Awakening. And it was this movement of Sunni sheikhs from uh, like Ramadi from the Sunni triangle there that decided that they were going to side with the government. And so we doled out massive amounts of cash. I mean, I've never seen as much cash physically in my life as I saw in our safe in Baghdad. Hmm. That was forgiving to these fighters uh, to set up checkpoints. We gave them what we couldn't give them weapons, but we gave them the money to buy weapons. Mm. Um, and they were basically a militia that we funded and kind of trained. Uh, and they fought for us, basically, and kind of brought like a measure of peace to that uh, part of Baghdad before we left. And are they now, are they still fighting for us over there now that we're gone and not giving them money? I would assume that that um, sort of, um, you know, respect for, uh, you know, for our for our nation's values have, is sort of dissipated. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're probably right. I mean, uh, uh, some of them, I'm sure, were recruited into the Iraqi army um, and they very well could still be fighting. 
uh, for for Iraq for the government. Uh, but I would be willing to bet that a majority of them probably just went over to the uh, to ISIS. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's just a job. I mean, that's right. That's kind of what it sounds like with a lot of this stuff is that it, it's just a job. It's not necessarily an ideology. It's just, you know, who's got the best benefits. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's really the bottom line is that like these people are in such dire straits economically um, that, you know, if you have any experience being able to hold a gun and pull a trigger, well, congratulations, you can earn five bucks a week by being an ISIS fighter. So why not do it? You know, five bucks a week. I'm in. (laughs) That sounds amazing. What would be something you would you want the American people to know? People who watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, you know, read New York Times, Washington Post. We hear about the war. What's one of the biggest misconceptions about the actual war, being on the ground fighting a war. I mean, the New York Times just published an article. It, the title was Islam is Islamophobia a problem in the U.S. military? I mean, probably. <laughs> you know, we sent them over to fight. Uh, you know, and, uh, that seems like a natural extension of war would be sort of being phobic of your enemy. Um, what would be something that you want the American people to know about war uh, that isn't being told in any of the narratives in mainstream media? Well, I mean, honestly, I I take issue with that uh, New York Times article because I'm not a practicing Muslim, but I was raised as a Muslim. My dad's actually Iraqi. He's from Ramadi. Um, Mm. And I was in Iraq before the war started visiting family. I still have family over there. Um, And I was never once from the day I joined the army treated any differently from any other soldier uh, just based on my name or my complexion or religion, you know, uh, or lacks thereof. But uh, I guess one thing I would want the American people to know is that not necessarily in relation to war specifically, but just in relation to the state of the country today, how divided it is and how much just like infighting there is between all the different classes and social groups and races. I mean, the U.S. Army or any military for that matter is kind of like the model, I think, for almost a perfect society because when you join the Army, Uh, It doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. What matters is that you're part of a team now. And as long as you pull your weight for everybody else and, you know, that's it. As long as everybody's pulling their weight together, the organism works. Um, And it doesn't nobody gives a shit where you're from, you know. But, I mean, I thought I was supposed to be an army of one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an army of one team, I guess. I don't know. That was a pretty stupid uh, marketing decision, that army of one thing. Yeah, that that never made sense to me. Did you ever have a situation where someone wasn't pulling their weight and uh, it cost, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's weird. It seems like if you make a mistake, the the consequences are dire. It's life and death. Um, And that almost seems to be more, I mean, I would hate to be the one who made the mistake that cost the life of a friend of mine or something like that. Did you ever see those kinds of situations occur and if so how would that deal i mean how would the morale be in the troop if somebody messed up and it cost the life of somebody else well i mean you know luckily we had plenty of time training uh for train up to like weed those people out before we deployed there's always people that are just shit bags in an organization you know what i mean and we had them going to iraq but we knew that they were the shit bags and so we stuck them in jobs where they couldn't do that kind of thing cost somebody their life but I mean, to be honest with you, anytime somebody dies, if you're in the immediate vicinity, if you're part of that fight, everybody's wondering if there's something they could have done differently. Yeah. I mean, when I first came back, I was dealing with like a really serious case of survivor's guilt for a long time because uh, a good, good friend of mine was killed, you know, a couple feet away from me uh, in a firefight. And uh, I wondered 
you know, was, should I have been doing something differently? I should have mm. been doing this. I should have been doing that. But at the end of the day, it's like, you can't worry about that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It just ha- what happens happens. I mean, there is no rhyme or reason. Yeah. It does seem like people got shot and killed close to you. Yeah, so <laughs> on a regular I'm like basis. Bad luck. I'm bad luck probably. Yeah. yeah maybe so, they should have maybe put you in the kitchen. <laughs> maybe something like that. Then the don't cabbage would have gotten shot. Don't ever let me come to one of your live shows. <laughs> <laughs> You're bombed. I'll stand you by an enemy. It'll be perfect. <laughs> I don't know if this is a sensitive question or not. Probably not. But do you have a greatest kill? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I do, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah can, can you tell us about that? Um, well, okay, yeah, sure, why not? Um, on the We had a uh, October 4th was uh, a big firefight that we got in. Um, huge clearing operation. We kind of narrowed down uh, the operating area for some of these uh, uh, Al-Qaeda cells to an area around a, a big mosque that was kind of like central in our sector. So we went in at like 2 o'clock in the morning before the sun went up and occupied a series of houses um, surrounding this mosque kind of. And uh, meanwhile, our sister company came from north and started clearing down towards us. So it was almost like a pincer move uh, where they would be driving the bad guys into us and then we would take care of them. And so that was the, um, the firefight where uh, the, a good friend, my roommate, was killed. Um, and, you know, it was kind of crazy because, like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the gravity of, like, the situation on the ground uh, hadn't really struck me until somebody that I really cared about was killed, which is kind of fucked up if you think about it. But yeah, I think it's you. Um, mm-hmm. So this guy, was, he, he, got, he was killed, and it was the definition uh, of seeing red. You know what I mean? Like, it was like my eyes just glazed over. Over and I just like didn't give a shit at all about anything. I was just going to kill as many people as I could. And so we got into this epic firefight that just lasted for hours and hours and hours, this running battle. And uh, there were these two guys that I had seen uh, prior to the fight actually starting um, that were walking around the mosque on cell phones. And um, I saw them again, like maybe an hour into the fight. They were kind of peeking around this corner. And, uh, you know, I'm convinced to this day that they were like the early warning kind of uh, signal for the attack that Mm -hmm. they were calling on their cell phones that, uh, hey, there's guys in these houses, you know. And uh, so me, I was on a sniper team. And so me and the other guy uh, that was on my team, we both picked a target and, you know, we pulled the trigger and it was satisfying to fucking see the the muzzle rise and then come back down. And they were gone, just laid, laid out on the ground. Um, so that was probably the most satisfying just in that circumstance, right. you know yeah. what I mean? Because it was just like, to me, it felt justified because my friend had just been killed, you know? Right. Right. I mean, almost impossible to not feel unbelievable amounts of rage at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I mean, that was probably the, the, the one and only time in my life that I've ever felt, uh, you know, like Viking rage that they talk about where yeah, it's berserker. Just like, ah, kill everything. <laughs> right. And you know, it's interesting. A lot of people who reach a high, you know, they, they peak, uh, they want to continually chase that high, you know, whether it be drugs or weightlifting, whatever it might be. Do you ever want to feel that way again? Do you ever, oh. do you chase that dragon or you're climbing Mount Everest or anything like that? Or are you like, that was good for then. And I never want to feel that much animosity or hatred towards another person ever again. Nope. I am a hundred percent an addict. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I mean, uh, like we came back from Iraq, I reenlisted to go to Afghanistan. Uh, so I went to Afghanistan in 2010 for a year. Um, and you know, it was a different experience, but after I got out of the army, I had a lot of problems adjusting. I actually had a pretty serious drug problem for a while when I first got out Mm -hmm. and luckily I've been able to put that all behind me. I'm clean and sober now for seven and a half months at this point. So congrats, man. That's great. Oh yeah, dude. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, going back, so you went to Afghanistan. Now, obviously, that's our longest war. We just celebrated 15 years. Yeah. I don't know if we can call it a celebration. But, <laughs> Yay! Uh, Yay! Yeah, exactly. We made it! Longest war ever! Uh, what, what do you think about Afghanistan right now? Uh, what was your experience over there? Much, much more calm, I would assume, than 2006, 2007 Iraq. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was night and day. Um, Iraq's, I mean, Afghanistan's a shit show. We accomplished absolutely nothing in the 15 years that we were there. And I'm convinced of that based on the experience that I had there. Uh, when, when we first got there, they changed strategies from going after the Taliban aggressively to this counterinsurgency style warfare where it was all about hearts and minds. And uh, the, the phrase that they kept using was ink blot. They were saying that mm. from where our little bases were, where we were set up in the middle of fucking nowhere, um, if we went out and patrolled the villages around us and we did nice things for those villagers, uh, they would go in turn to other villages and say, hey, the Americans are great. And thus, like an ink blot, this feeling of magnanimous or whatever. I yeah. Fuck it up. The feeling of, of goodwill towards the Americans would right. spread exponentially, right? Well, what they didn't take into account is the fact that Afghanistan is an extremely tribal country, and yeah. the people from one village fucking hate the people from another village that's yeah. half a mile up the river. Uh, so they're not going to go there to tell them how great we are, let alone for any reason other than to probably shoot mortars at them or fucking kill them. Yeah, and if no. they go and tell them how great you are, then they're going to hate you even more because the enemy, <laughs> like, it doesn't, Afghanistan seems to be the most misunderstood country uh, that the United States has has ever occupied. Uh, it just uh, seems like from beginning to end, the entire thing, and all of it, it, just it seems like there was no thought put into any of this whatsoever culturally. No, not at all. I mean, you know, we our objective right after September 11th was to take down the Taliban and deny uh, al-Qaeda uh, freedom of movement in that area. Unfortunately, by taking the government down completely, we just created more of a, a vacuum for them to move around in. And it doesn't help that Pakistan is is like their best fucking friend. Uh, it's unfucking believable, guys. Like seriously, the way that the war is being fought in Afghanistan is completely counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Like there's a legitimately there is a fighting season in Afghanistan that goes from like April until like October. And that's when all the fighting happens. And then once October hits and it gets too cold, the fighters bury all of their shit and cache it and they go across the border into Pakistan. Hmm. And then they rearm, they retrain, they get new recruits, and then come April, they fucking come right back across the border, dig up their weapons, and start fighting again. It's and like- we can't follow them across the border into Pakistan. There's no way to win the war while they have freedom of movement like that. Well, that would make sense. I mean, obviously, we killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. We have a, a lot of drone supervision over Pakistan. Um, what do you think? I mean, as a country, obviously, I don't think we have the national will for another ground war. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody wants boots on the ground. I think everyone just they they don't want they don't want to watch bad news. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. 
What what U.S. policy would you like to see put in place? Obviously, we had uh, you know we had we had the Bush doctrine, and then we had sort of the the the, the insurgent. Let let let's uh, have the surge, and then we have Obama, which has been a little bit more of he's trying to make you know more unilateral decisions, bringing many more nations in, and he's using drones, airstrikes, and uh, and re- relying on rebels on the ground um, in the region to sort of you know do our will. What would you like to see the U.S. do? Honestly, I would I would want to see a bigger um, presence of special operations forces on the ground in like Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, um, and in Pakistan. You know, because those guys really are the subject matter experts when it comes to detaining people, killer capture type raids, and then you know U.S. special forces, foreign internal defense. That's their job is to take a group of rebels, arm them, and train them. And then they stay with the guys that they trained as advisors. Um, so I would I would want to see a bigger presence of those types of guys on the ground to kind of direct where all these different assets are going. Because right now it feels like we're just throwing money and resources at this problem, wishing that it will go away. And it's not because there's nobody on the ground to funnel it into the specific places it needs to go. And then when it comes to Pakistan, honestly, I fucking hate Pakistan. I hate Pakistan more than Afghans or Iraqis. You know, the people I actually fought against, I hate the Pakistanis more because they enabled them to become as big of a problem as they are. And I mean, let's talk about the fucking nukes that Pakistan has if, if if World War Three starts, that's where it's going to start on the subcontinent. I firmly believe that. Hmm. Um, do you think that the wars were justified, Iraq and Afghanistan? Afghanistan, yes. Iraq, no. So if you could go back, yeah. I mean, I think I feel like that is the overall uh, feeling. Yeah. Did you believe in 2005 that Iraq was justified? No. Uh, but, you know, I was just that much of a war junkie as a kid that I was yeah. like, I got to get my piece of the action. Mm-hmm. So I, re- I was just hoping it wouldn't end before I got a chance to get over there. <laughs> well, well, you were very lucky. It definitely didn't. <laughs> it definitely did not end. So when you got back to America, I guess we can sort of wrap up that part of the uh, mm-hmm. of the interview. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. I know those are like really difficult and um, we really appreciate everything that you did. Um, when you when you come back to America now, I mean, obviously you've seen a lot of battles. A a lot of your friends have seen, uh, you know, the atrocities of war. Were what were you expecting? Were you expecting, uh, the, the welcome of a world war two soldier where everyone was hugging you and loving you? Or were you expecting something more like a soldier from Vietnam where they were speeding on you and calling you trash? Um, what, what exactly was the reception? Because my personal feeling is that we don't honor our troops nearly enough, specifically in a volunteer military where they're going over and they're doing unbelievable feats, uh, theoretically in our honor, regardless of if, if we agree with the policy or not, I think we should treat our soldiers much better, but some thoughts on the VA and, and your overall experience. Well, I, when it comes to uh, expectations about coming home, the, probably one of the biggest things that shifted for me um, after my deployment experiences was that, like, maybe before when I, w- I was like, yeah, this will be awesome. I'll be a war hero. When I came back or during the experience, I just didn't care anymore. You know, like, I didn't really give a shit if anybody cared when I if I came and went. I just did my job. And I wanted to come home and be with my guys, and that was it. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, is that? Do you think that's due to your training? That they uh, kind of I don't beat know. That, I think they it's kind of beat like that war hero thing out of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doing that kind of stuff, and you right. get into this insular kind of little group 
where it's like there's 30 guys that you trust um, more than anybody else in the world and they're the only people that you care about right and like after you spend any amount of time in actual combat with that group of guys you know the policy doesn't matter the politics don't matter what's going on at home doesn't fucking matter it's just you and your guys getting home okay and then you'll just worry about it after the fact but let's just just say you're at a bar you have a bunch of people talking about the war they're saying you know uh, going over some recent news article about how some American did something awful to God knows who uh, in the Middle East. I mean, how do you deal with that stuff? I mean, you you saw the war. You you were actually there firsthand. The vast majority haven't. They just live vicariously through the newspapers, which are extremely corrupt in their own right. I mean, how do you deal with hearing a bunch of people trashing what you just did over there? Um, I just wouldn't even uh, you know get up and leave. Just not even try and. Um engage them in conversation you know what i mean um i that's what i would do to be a hundred percent honest with you today no because you know i've got a, a little bit more maturity behind me some more life experiences i can recognize in hindsight the person that i was um and just how angry i was about everything um at that time in my life um now I would probably just try and have like a, uh, a decent conversation like we're having now. But back then, um, when I first got back, I would just get up and leave. I'd finish my beer and just leave to get away from that conversation. Yeah. Is there anything that triggers you to this day that makes you feel as if you've gone back there or anything that really like sets you off? Luckily, I haven't had anything like that in a long time. Um, probably the worst one that I experienced was uh, in like 2009. It was right after I got back from Iraq, I was uh, visiting my dad out in LA and we were in downtown and uh, the street sweepers, the people that just clean the streets out in LA, they have these walkie talkies that make like a certain sound. So whenever they transmit, they make this beeping sound. And it was the same radios that the Iraqi army guys had when we were over there. Mm. And so I was like out with my dad doing whatever in downtown. And um, I hear this, these radios start beeping uh, these guys are talking to each other and just instantly it was like a switch flipped. I just felt like, holy fuck, I'm back in Baghdad right now. And I just had to get out of there. I told my dad, I'm like, yo, we got to go. And he just, he didn't understand. And so I was just right. like, well, meet me on the, at the end of the fucking block. And I just took <laughs> off running. Yeah. Meet me and, at the end uh, of this extremely clean like block. Two, yeah. I ran like two blocks up chain smoked, like three cigarettes. And then, uh, I felt okay after that, but that was probably like one of the worst ones for me. Can you explain that at all? Like we just did an episode of a round table of gentlemen. There was a story where a guy was tripping on acid and he thought a house was on fire and he saved the dog. Um, can you explain when you do get snapped into uh, that sort of war mindset? I mean, is it physical? Uh, is it mental? Do you actually, I mean, what is it, what is it like to you? Um, because it's tough for us to understand. I don't know what it is to be snapped, uh, you know, back into a horrible situation like that. No, it's uh, it's mostly physical, a physical reaction. I kind of your blood starts pumping and you just feel like tingly, like super, um, super like just tight and apprehensive about what's going on. And then for me, um, it, it's like uh, that just adrenaline drop. And then I see everything in kind of like snapshots of like stuff happening. Um, so like for me in, in LA, the way, one of the things it was the radios beeping auditory that kind of was, I was like, what the fuck? And then I looked around and the way that the sun was hitting the buildings, um, it made them look that kind of like mud shit brown color that mm-hmm. Iraqi houses are. And th- it was just a combination of like the color of the buildings around me and that beeping just instantly kind of 
triggered like uh, this physical fight or flight kind of like response. I mean, it sounds like a real hallucination. Yeah, I mean, shit, I, I, I did mushrooms like years ago, and that was totally different, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, dude. Then you just become the couch. Right. <laughs> it's not bad. Um, so just briefly here, I mean, we have to wrap it up. Thank you so much. Um, but with the VA, uh, you know, the scandals are all around. We're, we're hearing about it on a regular basis. Uh, uh, how do you think the VA is treating our vets? What can they do better? And are they doing some good things that aren't being reported? Uh, I absolutely do think that they're doing good things that aren't being reported at the individual provider level. So what I mean by that is like uh, the therapist that I dealt with at Stratton, which is the big VA hospital here in Albany, was great. I mean, me and her working one-on-one, it was fantastic. And I I got a lot out of our time together. Um, Things that people probably don't realize is that, you know, the, the, the VA is like a bureaucratic monster. Um, that's just made up of red tape and in between the red tape, there's good people who actually care about their jobs and care about what they're doing. But you know, that doesn't help a veteran when he schedules an appointment and it's five months before he gets in to see somebody. Right. Um, they might be the most well-meaning person in the world, but in that five months, you know, that guy could do anything, you know, kill himself, fucking kill somebody else. Who knows? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we all we we just con- we constantly hear the uh, the stats about uh, veteran suicides. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking, really. I mean, unfortunately, I know a couple people that killed themselves too. So I've, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. it surrounds you. You know what I mean? Right. Everybody knows somebody that's either died or killed themselves. I think going on, you know, shit. Well, what- sixteen years now since these wars started. What could this country do better to sort of, you know, help curb, uh, you know, suicides? Warriors who come back after defending this country, they they should feel, you know, the, the morale should be, uh, we, should, we should have institutions put in place that, that boost the morale so they don't kill themselves. I mean, what would you like to see this country do or just us as civilians? How do we, uh, you know, how should we, uh, you know, approach people returning from war? Man, that's a tough question. Um, I think that there's tons of resources out there already for guys that are uh thinking about killing themselves or self-harm or whatever um but the culture of uh a soldier especially combat soldier uh from any branch is that you know you don't ask for help because you should be self-sufficient and self-reliant the only people that you really should have to rely on like i said are those 30 dudes that are like your little tribe or family that you deployed with Uh, So it's very hard for people to actually kind of like nut up and go ask for help if they need it. Um, So I would honestly say that it has to be something that with new soldiers that are coming into the military, you know, that needs to be like something that they start teaching them from day one of basic training is like, hey, listen, nobody's too big to ask for help uh, if they legitimately need it. Um, And I think that that will just kind of have like a trickle down effect. Uh, throughout their career as a soldier that, you know, maybe they'll be more likely to ask for help if they need it. It's a bit of a stretch, but I, I kind of want to ask this question regarding women in combat and women in the military. It seems it's a more feminine notion to express your feelings and let people know, uh, you know, when, you, when you're not, um, you know, mentally, you know, uh, you know, feeling your best. Do you feel like the military is going to benefit from having more women in roles of power? Yeah, I mean, it couldn't hurt, I guess. Uh, The only issue that I really have is with, um, you know, the women in combat arms kind of thing. I don't mind 
uh, having a female like in my platoon or on my squad. Um, more power to her, you know what I mean? The only thing that I would want to see happen is the physical standards of being able to do the job like have to remain unchanged because right. – you know, it's it's science. Like I'm not being sexist here by saying that like physically, women and men are able to perform different um, physical feats. Right. Yes. So as far as women in positions of power, I've seen plenty. Um, you know, in, that were, you know, uh, female majors, uh, female colonels, female generals uh, that were in charge of logistical companies or battalions or whatever. Uh, and I saluted them just like I would salute uh, a male officer. Uh, so the respect is there. Once you actually get in the ranks, the respect is 100% there. Um, you know, I'm just kind of sick of the government using the military as like their little test tube for social experimentation. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, and God knows they've been doing that for a long time. Look at uh, Agent Orange and, you know, going back. Every every government has used their military, uh, you know, and experimented on them. But sometimes you guys get exoskeletons, which is really cool. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, as well. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, Tamim. Thank you guys for having me. Seriously, yeah. I mean it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for being honest and open with us, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're uh, the best. Anything you want to plug? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I think he's just some guy. He's a guy. That's, <laughs> but he's a hero. He's a war hero. Like, I, think he's he, just, I think he's just got a job. He doesn't have a plug. He's not a stand-up comedian. He wants to plug their new blog, but how they're not getting enough stage time. No. Well, no. What, do you, what do you do for a living, man? So I work for um, a chain of grocery stores out here doing loss prevention. I stop shoplifters. It's yeah. pretty fucking boring, It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to want to plug his grocery store no plug is it a piggly wiggly if it's piggly wiggly you better plug it and i'm sorry for stealing so much from your store in 1993 all right we don't hold it against you thank you so much um all right everyone that was to thank you guys for listening that's marcus parks find him on twitter at marcus parks instagram at marcus parks i'm at ben kissel ben now we now i feel bad for doing plugs it's, i didn't do no. anything for the country it's, it's fine we're, we're doing everything we can yeah that's fine to give him my plugs it's ben kissel one on instagram <laughs> Uh, ben Kissel on Instagram. Go to the Facebook page. Go to the Facebook page. Abe Lincoln's top hat. Abe Lincoln's top hat. Perfect. Okay, that's that's good. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.